You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. Welcome to Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and share essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency. With my co-host, George Morgan, we're speaking to changemakers and innovators who are transforming architecture as we know it by designing in ways that respect planetary boundaries. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. I hope within one to three years, we'll be able to have a up and going system uh, for reviewing projects regularly, producing these en- energy models, hopefully working with other practices. So collaborating with others, I think, will be key to get this going. And there is such a big push at the moment to get a better grip on this, that I think people are so interested to work and share ideas. Our fourth climate champion is Diana Dina, Head of Sustainability and Regenerative Design at Hayworth Tompkins. I'm recording this after a momentous couple of weeks in the UK green building movement because Foster and Partners and Zaha Hadid Architects, the first and third largest practices in the AJ100, have withdrawn from Architects Declare, the Climate Emergency Manifesto co-founded by Hayworth Tompkins director Steve Tompkins and Michael Pollan. Our second guest, Lauren Shevels, co-founder of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, reacts to the Foster Zaha news. The fact that Architects Declare has been under fire from these high-profile practices makes our interview with Diana, which we recorded just before these latest developments, extremely timely. Many are querying exactly what AD has achieved. Are they just talking heads? On the back of Architects Declare, Hayworth Tompkins decided to up its own game within the 85 strong practice by creating the position Diana now holds. She started in September 2019. We're catching up with her a year and a bit into her new role. Diana's insights into how to be a change maker in a large practice are relevant across the board. Almost a decade ago, after Diana completed her master's in environmental design at the Bartlett, I was fortunate to have her as an intern on my AJ Footprint blog. It's wonderful to welcome you back to the AJ a few years later as a climate champion. Thank you so much, Hattie. One of the reasons I'm really keen to have you on the podcast is that sustainable design is a journey and practices are at very different stages. We can all learn a lot from hearing about the way you're tackling this at Hayworth Tompkins with both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. I also really applaud the fact that the practice has been transparent about saying that they don't have it all sorted and need to up their game, so they've hired you. 
Yeah, so this was uh, an interesting approach that they took. They've started a discussion about where they want to be as a design-led practice. They basically acknowledge the fact that they are interested in design and sustainability at the same time. And then it was a kind of practice-wide decision to have a dedicated sustainability role within the practice. And this came both from the sustainability team that was already in place and also kind of top-down approach from uh, directors having a succession plan in place and the formation of an employee ownership trust, which actually meant that basically everybody in the practice became a lot more involved with decision-making and uh, setting the trend for where where the practice wants to to be. So I believe that one of the first things you did was set up a procedure for the practice to measure its own carbon footprint. And I see that there's a 20-page report on the website of the 2019 emissions available for download. You also installed sensors in the office to measure indoor environmental quality. Clearly, your own office emissions are infinitesimal compared to the impact of your projects. Why did you decide to tackle the office first? And what were the main takeaways from this exercise? So we had back in November last year, we had this away day a full day out of the office with everybody just to kind of have some workshops, speakers on some key sustainability and regenerative design topics. And one of the results of that was the fact that we wanted to be a bit more aware of our own impact within the practice and with our designs. And we decided to do the carbon footprint exercise just because we we realized that it kind of forces us a bit to become more aware of how we run the practice. But at the same time, it pointed to the fact that the impact in our designs is so much greater. So at the same time, we realized that we need to start in-house. We need to start sorting our own operations and, and the way we work in the office and then move on from that to to having an impact through our designs. So they're, they're kind of linked. And we had a discussion at some point with Michael Pollin and he came back with a brilliant feedback on this. And he said, yes, this is so important just to set up the practice and the culture and, and how we want to take ownership of what we do and start with our own office and then project that towards our clients and, and our consultants. So it kind of starts with cleaning up the house a bit and then and then moving onwards to seeing how that reflects in, in our designs. So in terms of your, um, your project workflows, you've said that there's a specific sustainability team. So do the sustainability people come and say, mm, that form factor is a bit high or that's a lot of unshaded glazing? And are there tensions between sustainability issues and other aspects of design? The team itself has a more kind of guidance role. So I've started to put together a design toolkit to guide this decision making for each project. And uh, we're trying to implement that at the moment. So we want to have this kind of regular design reviews going through our toolkit and through the key parameters that we want to be reporting on and have regular reviews at each design stage. And then the most, let's say, interesting or potentially, uh, you know, innovative projects can be discussed in the um, sustainability team meetings and major decisions within the practice are discussed in the sustainability team. But that won't go to kind of form factor for a particular individual project. Uh, And yes, there will be a lot of tension between trying to incorporate 
sustainability decisions within design decisions that are so uh, focused on design aesthetics, because it's true, we're trying to bring the two together in the most amiable way possible, let's say. And this will always be a discussion. And the fact that we're trying to upscale our project architects and part ones, part twos in-house, that will basically help us in the long run to get this sustainability thinking going so that at some point people can make their decisions based on both design and uh, regenerative principles without having necessarily have to go to a feedback from somewhere else, uh, you know, an external consultant or, or myself or someone else. And so with, with clients, how does it go in terms of, um, well, how is Tompkins is a practice that people might want to hire for lots of reasons, apart from sustainability. Uh, any client organisation will say it wants to be sustainable, but it might mean they have to do something differently or accept higher upfront costs. So are there challenges around this? Yes, in this area, we found that there are clients who approach us because they know that we have this keen interest in sustainability. There are other clients who uh, have their own targets that they want to achieve and need guidance and, and help on that. And we found that having an initial sustainability workshop at the kickoff of the project is really important to just discuss what can be done and, and how we can help them achieve their own carbon commitments, for instance. And if there aren't any specific requirements that they have, just bringing that discussion to the front and having that initial conversation, especially since we might be the only ones involved in the beginning of a project. Other consultants might not be involved at the very start. Um, it's, it's really important to get that discussion going rather than wait until, you know, stage two, three, four, where you have an M&E consultant or um, structure engineers on board or so on. So starting from stages zero, one and having that discussion, we found that is really, really helpful. Well, I mean, I'm sure everything is different due to the pandemic and I don't know how that's affected your workload, but that sounds like a huge amount of projects in a practice as large as Hayworth Tompkins to try to keep tabs on. Yes, but I found that once we have, once I have the initial discussion with the team on a project and they um, basically understand what are the key elements that we want to be chasing on a project, it's fine for them to chase those then with the consultants and the client. That's why I was talking about the autonomy in design decisions and making sure that the architects are, you know, up to speed, scaled up acquiring that kind of ownership. So I'm providing support to the project architect and, and their team. But then from then on, it's up to them to move that forward and keep that going throughout throughout the design stage. Mm -hmm. So it's ownership um, and confidence, I guess. Yes, yeah, 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 both both going together. So they need to be confident that they know what they need to be asking or looking for. And then it's very important to just have those discussions with the consultants. And this idea of multidisciplinary approach on every project is really key. And everybody pushes in the same direction is it's really important. This really came out in our first episode with Maria Smith, the importance of everybody pushing in the same direction. 
I would like to point our listeners to the climate tab on the Hayworth Tompkins website, where you have a lot of links to useful resources, as well as a list of the measures that the practice has taken as a signatory of Architects Declare. I see that you're using the RIBA 2030 Challenge and the Leti Climate Emergency Design Guide to inform your work on new projects. How are you getting on with whole life carbon assessments? So whole life carbon is basically bringing together the embodied and the operational carbon. And for embodied carbon, we've started to use some free tools in-house and then rely a lot on discussions with structure engineers to provide analysis on their design work as well. While on operational side, on the operational side, we've done some training to use PHPP, which is the Passive House Planning Package, which is a very good tool to use, even if you're not designing necessarily a passive house. It's a very, it produces an accurate model for energy use on residential buildings, especially. And then we are trying to push as much as we can to have, for instance, TM54 analysis from our MEP consultants on non-residential projects. Again, TM54 and PHPP are the two operational tools that are recommended by the REBA Sustainable Outcomes Guide. And and we're trying to promote these on the operational side as, as much as possible. And then as well as information from structural engineers for embodied energy, I understand that you're using Hawkins Brown's tool for getting embodied carbon information out of Revit. So how, how are you finding that? It's worked really well and we have several people very involved with that and interested to, to do research on that. So they're using that in-house, doing comparative analysis on various facade buildups. So that was a very good piece of, of software that we use to have very quick analysis that we can do ourselves rather than go out to a consultant. So it's fast, it's easy to use. So yeah, we'd recommend it. And the actual standards, that the, the targets in Letty or Reba's guidance for embodied carbon, do you think that they go far enough? Um, do you think in, in a climate emergency, it's okay to be using concrete above ground for anything, even if there's some offsetting? Because a lot of the previous projects from Harith Tompkins use a lot of brick. Um, do you think that we'll need to use less in future? I think it needs the, the type of uh, material and structure needs a balanced approach. So the decision on that needs to have a balanced approach. There are instances when going with a timber structure is the best solution for that particular project. There are instances where if that is not a feasible solution, then trying to decarbonize as much as possible uh, reinforced concrete structure is, is probably the best approach. So it needs to have a balanced view on what the project needs and can achieve. And obviously pushing for the targets that we're aiming for because the RIBA 2030 and LETI have the same targets, almost the same, especially when it comes to operational energy. It's very similar when it comes to embodied carbon. They're all pushing for reducing embodied carbon as much as possible. And as we've seen from the LETI guidance, it looks like the way to achieve those targets would be a low energy timber structure, probably, if we can, and or combined with reusing materials, 
trying to think about circularity and adaptability and ease of disassembly, trying to develop this, this thinking about creating a building that will be a kit of parts at the end of the building's life. Can we disassemble that and, and use those materials in a new building? So trying to implement this thinking about reusing and recycling materials is, or, or upcycling materials as well in our projects is something that's not currently a mainstream approach. And it's something that needs a bit more thinking, I think. That leads very well into my next question, which has to do with retrofit, because I know the practice has done a lot of retrofit projects. In your excellent talk at the recent RIBA Smart Practice Conference, which I would highly recommend to our listeners if you want to hear more about Diana's work, you mentioned that you're now undertaking demolition audits. How are you getting on with that and what challenges have you encountered? We found some brilliant collaborators that have a very thorough approach and also very practical approach in in doing these pre-demolition audits. And it's helped us a lot to have a think about what are the useful materials that we can uh, feasibly reuse on projects where there is any kind of partial demolition the challenges are related to kind of stages of of design work and project stages if the demolition phase for instance happens way in advance of the actual project happening there is a need to have some sort of dedicated space for storage so that is a thing that needs to be discussed with the client from the start and Having that approach requires the client to have a bit of commitment in terms of, yes, we wanted to be doing this. There's another discussion to be had also with contractors because some demolition contractors will be able to store some materials on their premises and then use them later when the main project starts. So it's kind of a work in progress trying to do this in the right way. But definitely the fact that we've been starting to do the audits and and using them on projects regularly is a good good start, I think. So it's an extra cost for the client, presumably, to do this. The audit, yes, but it's probably in line with various other surveys they would need to do in the initial phases of design anyway. I don't think it's a cost. No, no. I want to ask you about post-occupancy for a moment. I know that you've gone back to revisit the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, where you have an extremely engaged and proactive client. What have you learned in revisiting the Everyman? We've wanted to use the Everyman as a case study for our post-occupancy evaluation studies that we want to carry out on several of our projects. And we've started to set up a reporting template for this based on the uh, rebar poe primer that we want then to use on all of our projects unfortunately we've started the work on that in january just before the lockdown and we have some data we've done a uh, building user survey and we've had the results back from arup on that and they look really encouraging so what we want to do now is to put together this report for every man and use that as a template for future POE projects that we'll do in the practice. It's kind of it helped us to start the thinking about how much time we would need to spend on that on this type of analysis and realize the fact that we want to be doing this in-house regularly 
and just basically trying to to figure out time scales and kind of stuff just to get our heads around what this would mean. Right. Well, the practice is well known for its work on performance spaces and theaters. Do you have to adapt the approach if you do it on another building type? What are the what do you have to do? Yeah, so that's that's the challenge. The fact that we're working on in mainly in three key, very different sectors, uh, performance spaces, medium, large residential and education spaces will need to adapt our approach because the way we will do, for instance, uh, building user feedback would be different in a performance space compared to a residential building or university. So, so that's a key difference in terms of doing analysis on energy data or environmental performance so, for instance, for every man, we had to install environmental uh, sensors in key parts of the building. We would probably be able to do the same in a university building. It might be different for residential projects. So it's a bit kind of trying to see how we can adapt this to suit the specific uh, sector. So Diana, this is a tough question. I know you've been there just over a year in pushing this agenda forward, structuring this approach, putting all these processes in place. How long do you think it takes to reap the benefits? I mean, are we looking at three years, five years, eight years to get this all kind of up and running and people skilled up? And do you have a timeline? I don't think we can afford eight years, for instance, or five. I, I really don't think we can afford that. I hope within one to three years, we'll be able to have a up and going system uh, for reviewing projects regularly, producing these en- energy models, hopefully working with other practices to, to improve the way we, we do this, because obviously there's ways to improve things and there's uh, people come up with new ideas of how to, to make things a bit more efficient. So collaborating with others, I think, will be key to get this going. And there is such a big push at the moment to, to get a better grip on this that I think people are so interested to work and share ideas that we must be able to do this <laughs> within a shorter time frame because we, we just don't have the time, to be fair. I want to ask you now about regenerative design. There's a lot of talk about regenerative design, and I know that Michael Pollan refers, prefers this term to sustainable design. It feels a bit like the new buzzword, and it's even part of your job title, but it seems so far from mainstream practice at the moment. And I wanted to ask you, what are the main pathways forward in regenerative design that you think can begin to make an impact within the next decade, say? Yes, so the move from sustainability to regenerative design is is really something we are keen to do and trying to promote as much as possible, trying to move from sustainability that says, okay, let's minimize the negative impact that we have through our designs towards regenerative where we try and produce some sort of positive contribution to to the environment and this is based on Kate Rewar's work about donut economics and and how we're trying not to to stay within the ecological ceiling of of what the planet can provide for us it is a goal and it's to do with basically assessing on each project 
what can be done to produce a positive impact, where we, which are the areas where we can produce something more and give back more. So it's a goal. And this is something that comes uh, very close in line with the uh, living building challenge approach that we would like to embrace a bit more, trying to have a holistic view on of, of how we design and then think about how we provide something back for the environment and the society as a whole. So it's a challenge for architects, I think, in the next 10 years to, to try and, and see how we can push this forward a bit. On the circular economy side, there's quite a bit of high-level guidance and policy about the circular economy. But on a real project, it can be quite hard to get more reused materials into buildings beyond a few kind of reclaimed bricks or maybe some timber. How, how do we improve this? There are lots of discussions about trying to reuse structural members, whether those are made of timber or steel or or various other bits, because we know that the majority of embodied carbon in a building will be in the building structure. And actually, the majority of the embodied carbon within the building structure will be in the floors. And this comes from uh, various analysis that Bure Harpold or Whitby Wood have done. And it's really key, once we understand that, to try and see if there are ways to promote a bit more the idea of reusing uh, structural elements, which, which is not something that's currently being done frequently. And then embedding this idea uh, of building as a kit of parts, as uh, building as material banks, which is, again, it's a BRE study, for instance, that was done on this, uh, looking at the importance of disassembly and reuse of, of material parts and actually thinking of a building made of layers that can be easily taken apart and reused elsewhere. So I, I think, again, it's a systemic change and a major change in, in, in the way we think um, and design that needs to take place for this to happen. So that might mean things like steels with more bolted connections so that it can be disassembled easier or maybe using lime mortar instead of cement mortar with bricks so that you can reuse the bricks? Yes, yeah, yeah, all of the above. And uh, we found that there is a very good tool that was developed by ACOM and Sheffield University called uh, Regenerate. And that is a very useful design tool that we can use on projects looking at circularity options for site, building, building fabric structure, facade services and interior fit out. And going through all of this, it kind of raises questions and prompts about things that can be done for increasing the circularity on a project. So at what stage are you, is the ideal moment to be thinking about this? Uh, probably two to three. Mm-hmm. Just because it will raise questions about the services that are being used, uh, the structure and the way that comes together or can be taken apart. So probably stages two to three, it's the best moment to do it. So you've spent the last seven or eight years working in smaller practices. What have been the main challenges of leading the sustainability agenda in a large practice compared to a smaller practice? All of it is to do with engaging people, I think. So I remember a few years back, 
when I was doing a lot of site work, actually, on, on small residential buildings in London, a friend was asking, what's the majority of my work? What What's the main part of my work? And, and I said, 80% of what I do is dealing with people, basically. And I was thinking about clients and site work and contractors and subconsultants and, and all that, which seemed to be taking so much time. And I realized that now I could say it's 99% of, of the work that I do, probably. It's, it's, again, dealing with people, making sure that they understand why is this important, and they do. And then they feel engaged, and they do, you know, in various proportions. And then all of this discussion about trying to, to marry the idea of regenerative design and good design work aesthetically is something that we need to push more and more. And the fact, for instance, that we had a Sterling Award uh, last year, which was for a, a design-led project with great sustainability credentials, I think that gave the entire industry an example of of where things are heading. And that's an example for us as well uh, of what we need to be doing. Well, that's a great place to end because that was exactly the next question I was going to ask you about because as you know this preconception that good design and sustainability do not go hand in hand still plagues us and it's a cause I've been championing at AJ for years and it's really great to see a practice like Hayworth Tompkins get to grips with this agenda. So thank you very much, Diana. Thank you. Our second guest today is Lauren Shevels of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. Lauren, we're delighted to have you on the podcast today. As a co-founder of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, and a member of the steering group of Architects Declare, can you describe the differences between the two organizations and also how they are working together? Both Architects Climate Action Network and Architects Declare started around a similar time and in a similar context of the climate strikes last year. Where they're specifically different is Architects Declare is a coalition of practices and businesses, whereas Architects Climate Action Network is an organisation of individuals, where we often leave our work affiliations at the door when engaging with ACAN activities. So this gives us the freedom to be honest and vocal and call it how we see it. And I think also ACAN is open to anyone and you don't need to be an ARB registered person or practice. We also have many students and academics. And you know, where Architects Declare has its strength is that it's it's formed around businesses which are obviously well respected and have grandeur in the field. So we have these two very different um, strengths which work complementary and synergetically together. So where ACAN and AD collaborate could be on joint campaigns where we feel like both of our strengths from different perspectives can really enhance or support one another. 18 months since its founding, what have been AD's most important achievements? I would say 
the transformation that signatories have had within their own practices. Our signatories have started to make the change towards those 11 declaration points. We ran a survey this year in 2020 that showed what a significant turning point the declaration was for for a lot of our signatories. And I think at the point of signing, many of our signatories were meeting none or hardly any of the declaration points. Another really important achievement is the international outreach that Architects Declare has had, and now leading that at an international level with other Construction Declares partners globally. Also, as well, to touch on Hattie's first question, collaboration has been key as well. You know, we we at AD are collaborating with groups such as Letty and Architects Climate Action Network. We also ran an event recently with Business Declares. So I think it's all about trying to come outside of our, our architecture silo, so to speak. So what is AD doing to help practices along this journey? Because it is a path and it takes time and it's not an overnight fix. How do you share experiences and encourage others along the way? AD is all about trying to actively encourage and facilitate a collaboration across disciplines as much as it is about focusing within architecture. We've held online events since the pandemic and we also we're meeting in public for this um, embodied carbon meeting that we had at Field and Clegg Bradley at the start of the year. I think what was really important about the embodied carbon event was that we invited a carefully selected panel of experts, which included engineers as well as architects and other consultants. Um, so to kind of help practices along the way, you know, all of this information from these events is made freely available online. We are trying to support practices to respond to government consultations as well as policy. So most recently I was involved in creating the Architects Declare guidance on the planning for the future white paper. I had understood you were preparing guidance for practices. Can you bring us up to date on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is particularly exciting because it's going to be a published document that we'll be able to share with all of our signatories. So we're calling it the practice guide, but it's kind of an architect's working guide to highlight the best practice. And I think also what's important about this guide is it clearly identifies easy wins for like a variety of size studios. So that includes small, medium and large. That's really part and parcel of bringing studios and businesses along with us in this kind of mammoth feat to tackle the climate emergency. I think at a really high level, the guide is looking to cover a variety of topics such as practice operations and practice design work. Also looking at the relationships that you have with the clients um, and also how to conduct post-occupancy evaluations. So yeah, lots of really great things happening. You know, we've had so much guidance (laughs) as I've been covering this topic for, you know, more than 10 years. The RIBA did a green overlay to the plan of work quite a few years ago. And, you know, now we've got the Letty Guide, which is a wealth of information. How does what AD is preparing specifically differ and how is it going to help architects? That is a, a really valid question. And I think what we have to remember is that Back in 2019, these 11 declaration points were published and it was amazing to see 
the rush of practices to sign up and declare that there was a climate emergency. And I think through conducting the survey last year, we realised that a lot of our signatories wanted the support and the knowledge to actually make some really practical changes within their studios. Yeah. So I think we're not saying that there haven't been great guides before because obviously, as you say, there is a wealth of information out there. I think what we're trying to do is looking specifically at how we can deliver those 11 declaration points to businesses. And I also think that AD has been really far reaching across the UK in terms of challenging practices who might not necessarily have signed up and now they're looking at ways to make their practice more sustainable. So Architects Declare recently had a run-in with Patrick Schumacher from Zaha Hadid Architects over whether unfettered growth should be limited to confront the climate emergency. Why did Architects Declare decide to take a stand on this? That is a good question. ADE was founded to create a paradigm shift towards regenerative design and, you know, in signing the declaration, every signatory has publicly committed towards that shift. That means meeting society's needs for architecture without breaching planetary boundaries. And Architects Declare has said before, and we maintain a consistent policy of not calling out our signatories for for projects that are falling short. Our reason being is that I don't think any one practice is currently fulfilling every part of the declaration and we're all acting in good faith that this is working towards a common goal. So this kind of process of declaring, it has to be self-motivated and self-regulating. But if, however, a signatory publicly expresses a view that is blatantly at odds with the spirit of the the declaration i think that you know that's undermining its credibility and and that's why we felt compelled to speak out on that specific issue lauren the interview we recorded on monday has been up ended by the bombshell news this week that both Foster and Partners and Zaha Hadid Architects have withdrawn from Architects Declare, each citing slightly different reasons. So we've come back to you to ask another question. In my view, this is a complete distraction that undermines the urgency of positive change, which is what the AD movement is all about. It also turns the debate into a confrontation between the good guys and the bad guys, which is counterproductive and a waste of time. Foster and Partners cited differences over aviation and airport design as the main reason for their withdrawal from AD. My understanding is that it's actually ACAN, not Architects Declare, that has pressured Foster and Partners about airports. Zaha Hadid Architects has said that the AD steering group has undermined the trust of the AD coalition. You are the ACAN representative on the AD steering group. Can you clarify where both AD and ACAN stand on these withdrawals? Architects Declare has never publicly called out Fosters on aviation and Architects Declare will continue to hold off calling out signatories on individual projects because it's impossible for us to police. And I think it's really important to state on the record that we have never called out fosters on airports, despite sustained pressure to do so. 
And then we have our response to Patrick Schumacher's comments that were published in the AJ just last week on unfettered economic growth and, and the new technologies that may be able to save us from climate catastrophe. And I think, you know, we we decided to speak out on that because it was so at odds with the architect's declaration. And Architects Declare isn't a protest movement, it's a collaborative support network made up of industry professionals and businesses, and that is the bottom line. We're very much in kind of the eye of the storm right now, and we don't really know what the real outcomes of this week's events will be. But I think the steering group of Architects Declare is really disappointed, you know, like we never it's always disappointing to have people walk away from such a, a collective and such a positive initiative. Thank you very much, Lauren. In our next episode, Sarah Wigglesworth talks us through the just complete refurbishment of her groundbreaking Stock Orchard Street home in Islington, which is now 20 years old. She describes her deep dive into thermal imagery, U-value sensors, and air tightness tapes, and how it sparked her renewed commitment to what she calls eco-fundamentalism. You can find out more on the Climate Champions webpage at architectsjournal.co.uk, where you can also send comments and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.